The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Now, open up your Bibles if you brought them, and I hope you did, to James chapter 2. Um, James chapter 2 is where we are at. We are, uh, there's only five chapters in James, but James, the second half of James chapter 2 is really the crux of this book. So, so I need you to see this. We're going to work through this passage today, James 2. Uh, if, you're, if there's hardback black Bibles under every chair, you can grab one of those. That'll be on page 1012. If you're online with us, you can click the Bible tab. Uh, find James chapter 2. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version, okay? Now, right out of the gate, I'm going to tell you this. The passage that we're studying this morning is one of the most argued about passages in the New Testament. Historically, okay? This has been a point of contention, this text today. Uh, And this is the passage that has given people trouble throughout the ages because uh, this is where some people will kind of find a a handhold or a foothold to say this. You see, faith in Jesus is not enough to save you. This is where people will turn to make this argument. You need to earn some of this, okay? You need to add some works onto your faith if you want to be saved. That's the argument that some will turn to from James chapter 2. But, but just listen to me out the gate. That cannot be true. That cannot be true because it would negate the rest of the scriptures, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. Okay, this goes against everything that I've ever read, everything that I've ever preached and taught, everything that you probably have heard if you've been raised in a Protestant evangelical church at all. Like it would go against all of that. Like even the passage that Nathan read from Galatians chapter two, and there are plenty others I could have picked. But even that passage, it points out that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Like, We just cannot hammer that enough. So I just want you to know, James and Paul, Paul who wrote Galatians, who wrote a lot of our New Testament, those two guys, they mean different things when they use the word justified. They mean different things. Lots of words have different meanings, right? Bear. I can bear with someone. I can wipe a table bare. I can get attacked by a bear, right? Like, so words can have multiple meanings, right? The same is true with the word justified. It can mean multiple things and you have to read context to try and figure out what it means. So when Paul uses the word justified in Galatians chapter two, which was read over us, this is what Paul means. He's talking about the moment when God declares you righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, on the cross. You are justified in a moment, okay? We sometimes will use the vernacular about getting saved or being born again or or converting. That's what Paul's talking about. That moment where we are declared righteous because what Jesus has done for us. But that, hear me, is not how James is using the same word. That's why this is confusing. Okay? James is not talking about the moment where Jesus saves you, where you are declared righteous. Remember, James is writing to a bunch of Christians. 
Remember, I mean, from the last few weeks, he's writing to a bunch of new Christians who are in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances, and he's trying to encourage them to to make sure they have genuine faith, okay? And I said this in week one, he is assuming that they're already saved. He's assuming that they're already justified in the Paul meaning of that word. But as we all know, many people in kind of a fervor of emotion or in like a euphoric experiential moment might profess faith. They might say they have faith in Christ, but how do you know if that faith is real? How do you know if that faith is genuine? How do you know if that faith is indeed saving faith? This is what James is trying to do here. James is trying to show these Christians how to know if their faith is the real type of faith that will actually save. That's what James is doing. So when it comes to this whole Paul versus James world, okay, Paul is saying that justification is when we are declared righteous. James is saying that justification is when we are shown to be righteous, And there's a big difference. We're going to dig into this, okay? In other words, James is saying that our works demonstrate that we have already been justified, that we are indeed righteous. So it's more like the term theologically that we would use sanctification, okay? We don't have time to get into that today. Okay, if you took the theology course last summer, you'll know what that term means. But, but as we step into our text today, okay, James is in no, I just want to be clear. He is in no way saying that you earn your salvation with your works. That is not what he is saying. It cannot be. The scriptures must work in uh, accord with one another. So he is not saying that your works justify you as in save you. He's saying that your works are how you show that your faith is actually genuine faith. Okay, with all that said, let's get into our text, okay? James chapter two, look at this with me. We're gonna start in verse 14, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Okay, that's that's his thesis statement. Verse 14 is like the, the opening statement. It's like his thesis statement for this whole section. And the thing I want you to note in this verse is that James writes, if someone says he has faith. Okay, note, he didn't say if someone has faith, He says, there's somebody who's saying, they are saying, I have faith in Jesus. So they say they have a saving faith, but then James says they don't have any works that always accompany saving faith. Okay, they're not evidencing that Jesus has done a saving work in their life. And so James, his rhetorical question is this, that faith can't save him, can it? With the obvious answer, heck no, are you kidding me? I mean, he, it's not actually, he's not actually asking you like, do you think that faith could actually save him? He's not, he's saying, he's, he's saying it's obvious. It's obvious that if they don't have the works that accompany faith, that that faith is not real. I mean, we just saw this in the news this week. Uh, if you follow, if you follow anything, but if you, if you follow NFL football at all, a high profile NFL coach um, had an email surface this week. If you follow the news, you've read this, okay? He made a racially insensitive comment more than 10 years ago. 
And he comes out and he apologizes for it. And he kind of says, oh man, I misspoke. I didn't mean to offend. That wasn't my intent. And I think everybody in that moment was kind of like, yeah, man, that was dumb. But that dude doesn't seem like that bad of a guy. Everybody says something they, they you know, poor, poor choice, choice of words, but we'll give you a pass, right? And then the next day, New York Times reports that there are actually dozens of emails spanning seven years with racist, misogynistic, and homophobic slurs in them from the same guy. So all that talk yesterday, right? All that, that talk, all those apologies, they're worthless today. You say that you're sorry, but your works demonstrate otherwise. This is what James is talking about. We might call it hypocrisy, okay? That is acting one way when in reality you are not that way. He's gonna illustrate in verses 15 and 16, okay? So look at James 2, verses 15 and 16. He says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. Let me make our first point this morning about James and what he's trying to talk about faith and works. And this is what he would say. Faith without works is useless. Faith without works is useless. He gives us an illustration here in those last couple of verses. This is a scenario that he gives us. You've got a brother or a sister. Okay, so this is, when they says brother or sister, that means that it's somebody within the community of the church. It's just somebody inside of the church community and they are in need. So somebody sitting with you today, they are in need. It said daily food there without daily bread. You might remember that from the Sermon on the Mount, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. This brother or sister, this member of your church is without their daily bread and you say something nice to them. This is where it links to that first verse in 14. You say something, oh, be well fed, be warmed. You say something, but you do nothing. And he says, it's dead. It's useless. What good is that? saying if you're not going to do something about it. Now, this is an illustration, okay? This is allegorical at one level, but it also, I think, is really practical for us. Really, really practical. Here, here's, here's the application from this. We cannot say that we have faith in Jesus if we neglect God's people. You can say it all day long but especially when a brother or sister in Christ is in need, if you aren't doing something about it, it's bunk. This is a brother or a sister. I mean, I, I, I know that it's, we need to care about everybody, but this is a family member, your church family. And he's indicating that you have been blessed by God to live this open-handed life with what he has blessed you with to show that you actually indeed have a saving faith. So listen, this can be done with your stuff. You can show your faith by, by what you have with your possessions or your money, right? But this can also be done with your time. It doesn't just have to be done with 
cash, okay? Like as a suburban church, as a suburban church here uh, in the southwest side of Denver, okay, we won't have as frequently people who need legitimate daily food. Now we will, it'll happen, all right? And woe to us if we don't love and serve people in that moment with more than words, but probably a more frequent option for us in our context is that we'll find people in our church community who are dying from something else. They may not be starving to death, but they may be dying for, for, for somebody to just sit with them, for somebody to just listen to them. I mean, goodness, I, I meet with so many people. Do you know how much I hear about loneliness, about depression, about anxiety, about stress from suburbanites who've got a lot of bread, as it were? Listen, there are people in our church. There are people in your neighborhoods. There are people in your jobs. There are people in your classes. They've got real needs, daily bread type needs. And those, some of those are physical, but some of those are emotional needs. And what James is telling us is that if you want to know if you've got genuine faith, you should look to your response to others in the church community when they're in need. And he says, hey, just saying stuff, just, just giving them a blessing, it's not going to cut it. Are you just saying that you have faith or have you done anything for your brothers and sisters? Faith without works is useless. Now, when thinking about this this week, I thought about uh, this passage in, in Mark chapter two. Uh, there's a really famous story in Mark chapter two. Let me tell you what it says. Uh, we'll get to the passage. I want uh, the verse in a minute, but Jesus is in Capernaum. Okay. So you probably know this story if you've been raised in church, he's teaching in a home and there are so many that are there to hear him teach that there's no more room in this home. Like the, the door is blocked off. There's a crowd outside. There's nothing happening. Like you can't get in to see Jesus. And four men bring a paralyzed friend to get healed by Jesus, but they show up and they can't get in because it's just too densely packed. They can't get the, their paralyzed buddy to Jesus. So what they do is they, they climb up on the roof and they rip a hole in the roof and they tie some ropes to their buddy and they lower him down at the feet of Jesus in the midst of this huge crowd. And here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter two, verse five. I'll put this one up on the screen. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw their faith. What does that mean? Like, how, how do you see faith? Like, what, is this some sort of like super Jesus x-ray vision? I'm the Messiah, so I can just kind of see things sort of thing? I mean, it could be. It could be, but but maybe genuine faith is something we should be able to see. You know, there's a great difference between saying that you have faith and having a faith that can be seen. Okay, they say they have faith, but Jesus saw those guys' faith. There's a difference there, church. So this is what James is getting at. 
But he's going to go on. Look at verses 18 and 19. He brings up the argument. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So, so here's what James is going to do in this argument. He's going to up the ante a little bit. And here's where I'd like to make my second point, okay? Faith without works is ineffective. Okay, it's useless. It does no good for your brother or sister if you say you've got faith, but you're not actually caring for them. But now it's ineffective, okay? It is useless and it's ineffective. And he again uses this rhetorical device and he's essentially saying, how can you ever have faith without works? He brings up the guy who's like, you have faith, but I've got works. Like, I'll just, you know, he's bringing up some sort of hypothetical situation and he's essentially saying, that's asinine. How could you ever have faith without works? But this is what people will sometimes do. People will often say things like, well, I intellectually and mentally believe what is doctrinally true about the person and work of Christ. So I have faith, therefore faith without works, right? I'm justified by my belief. I'm justified by my faith. But James is saying that mere intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. You got to follow this, okay? You can believe everything right and still be wrong. So in the New Testament, the word that's translated believe is a Greek word that, that you, it's pistuo. Pistuo is the Greek word for translated believe. Now, it's a little unfortunate because again, that word has a lot of different caveats and meanings. It's, 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 it's a very colorful word. So sometimes it can be translated believe, but it can also mean a lot more than that. In fact, one definition I found this week was that uh, pistuo can mean to commit your whole life into. To commit your whole, that's different than, man, I believe I should work out. Right? Like to commit your whole life into. And so if, I'm sure if I asked a lot of people the question, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Man, my guess is a lot of people are going to say, of course I do. Of course I believe in Jesus. But my guess is that many people believe that Jesus did this or Jesus did that or, you know, what, like an intellectual assent. But this word means to believe in. Not just to believe that, to believe in, to commit your whole life into You see, believing that and believing in are significantly different things. Let me give some illustrations, okay? I did youth ministry for like 10 years. All right, I was a youth pastor for like 10 years. And let me make a statement I learned uh, about middle schoolers as a middle school pastor, okay? Belief doesn't change you. Application does. I learned this from middle schoolers, okay? For example, let's take deodorant, all right? I'm, talk to any middle schooler, all right? You talk to a middle schooler and you say, hey, do you believe in deodorant? And they'll likely say, yes, I do. Well, do you have access to deodorant? Yeah, mom bought me like three tubes, different scents. It's great, you know? 
have you used it before and experienced all of the goodness therein? Yes, I believe in deodorant. All right, bro, then why aren't you applying it? <laughs> like, because you're ripe, okay? Like, why don't you use it, okay? It's, it's not the belief in deodorant is a good thing. It's the, it's the belief in it. It's the apl- application of that stick that changes your life and, oh, by the way, the community around you, right? Okay, another way uh, that's less gross to describe this. Very common illustration. I've heard this a million times. You probably have too. When we moved into our house, we, bought my grand- we, we brought my grandmother's antique dining room set uh, for our dining room. Okay, so we br- brought this, this furniture into our dining room. But the thing about this set, it was like 100 years old, beautiful set. But, uh, but because of its age plus moving so many times and then to the dry climate of Colorado, um, it had made many of the wooden chairs, like the wood was so brittle that the integrity of the chairs was questionable at best. Okay, uh, and so we had some friends over for dinner and one of our friends, a uh, bigger guy, 6'5", uh, 200 plus pounds. I mean, a, bi- a big dude. I won't tell you his name. Uh, he's a member of a church, but uh, it rhymes with Bark Beister, Okay. Uh, so good sized dude. Um, well, bark is over and, uh, and he sits down in these already questionable chairs and it just splintered under him. I mean, it just shat kindling all over the place in my living room, just blew that chair up. All right. And he felt terrible. He felt, obviously, you sit in somebody's 100-year-old dead grandmother's chair, like, you're going to feel bad, too, okay? He felt terrible, even though it wasn't his fault, and I assured him, listen, that thing was, it was just, you just happened to be the straw that broke the camel's back, my friend, right? Maybe do some squats, but, uh, but what we did is we ended up going and, and went to the furniture place, and we bought a new set of dining room furniture, a new, nice new wood set, reinforced, like steel metal in there as well. Good chairs, okay, good chairs. Uh, so imagine I have Bark back over, okay? And, uh, and I show him the new chair. I show him the new set, the new, t- I'm like, hey man, don't worry what happened last time. It ain't gonna happen again. This is new furniture. And I'm like, you can trust these chairs, bro. And he's like, okay, man, I, I absolutely believe that that chair will hold my weight. And I'm like, okay, well, have a seat. I just have a seat. And he's like, well, you know, I'm not too sure. And I'm like, you're not too sure about what? It's furniture row, right? And he's like, I just don't know if I'm ready to sit down yet. But then I'm like, but you're sure the chairs will hold you, right? Absolutely. I absolutely am confident that that chair will hold me. Well, then sit down, like ha- take, take a seat. Uh, I don't know, like maybe we should just stand and talk for a while. I mean, it was just, you know, that last time with that janky old chair, it's just kind of scarred me. I've got some stuff in my past. You know, I had a bad experience with the chair as a kid and now I'm just not so sure. Do you think we could just stand here and talk for a few minutes about this before we sit? And I'm like, I mean, we can, we can do that. But you say you trust the chair, just sit down. Show me that you trust it. Yeah, I'm not so sure. This is what James is saying. He's saying, hey, you say you believe the chair will hold you. You say you believe in Jesus. You trust in Jesus. You have faith in him. Well, have a seat. Take a seat. 
He's like, I'll show you I believe by sitting in this chair. You say you believe in deodorant, use it. Say you believe in the chair, sit in it. Faith without works, it's ineffective. It's ineffective. And then he does this little thing with demons. You see that? James goes, hey, you believe that God is one, which is an Old Testament quote from the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Like the most basic biblical doctrine for the Hebrew people. You say you believe that. He's like, congrats. Demons believe that, bro. Like demons. They're not even children of God. They're not even children. They're demons. Like put, put it in your head. They believe that the Lord your God is one. Listen to me. Demons have better theology than you. They've been at it longer than we have. I assure you, this pastor right here, demons can stump me with the Bible. They could stump me with theology. They know these things to be true. So they have correct doctrine, but, but he's saying it's not saving doctrine. You can know these things and not apply them. They believe that, but the demons don't believe in. But then I love that he just kind of tags on there at the end of the verse. He's like, at least they have a good sense enough to shudder. At least the demons aren't passive about it. They're not just like, meh, I'll get around to believing in God at some point. Oh, yeah, meh. Like so many inoculated evangelicals feel. They have the sense to shudder at who God is. Okay, then James goes on. He's gonna give two biblical illustrations of faith and works here. So look at verse 20. We'll just do 20 through 24 and then we'll do 25. That's the second illustration. So 20. Do you wanna be shown, you foolish person? Which is a nice, that's like a biblical, right? He's, he's saying you're an idiot. Elder check, am I allowed to say that, John? Okay, thumbs up. Okay, we're good. That's what he just said. <laughs> Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says... Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, illustration one from the Bible, Abraham. James points to Abraham and if you know your Old Testament, the story of Abraham can be found starting in Genesis chapter 12. Okay, and in Genesis 12, by faith, Abraham leaves his father's home and land. And then by faith, he goes to a place he is, he's called to by God. He doesn't even know where he's going. That place will be called the promised land. And by faith, he believes God when God tells him that he will have descendants that are as numerous as the stars in the sky. By faith, Abraham believes these things. But do you remember there's a problem? The problem with Abraham is that he couldn't have kids. His wife, Sarah, was barren. So how do you have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky if you don't have any offspring? And then to double that problem, you remember how long he waited for God to fulfill that promise? 25 years. That's longer than y'all been alive. 
25 years. From Genesis 12 until Genesis 21, 25 years have passed, and then a son is born, Isaac. The promised son is born in Genesis 21. Now, fast forward to Genesis 22, because that's what our text is, is referring to here. In Genesis 22, we've got 20 years later. Isaac's maybe 20 years old at this point. So we're talking 45 years from the promise until the day where, by faith, Abraham says to his son, get you some wood. Strap it to your back. We're going hiking, bro. And he takes his son and Abraham takes him to the top of the mountain and he unloads the wood. And you can imagine at this point, Abraham's in his hundreds. Okay, maybe 120 years old. He's not putting his son, we, we picture like a little boy here. He's not putting his 20 year old son on the wood. The boy had to get on the wood. And he pulls out a knife and his son's like, hey, where's the sacrificial lamb? He's like, don't worry, God's gonna provide and he pulls the knife out and he puts the knife into the air, raising the knife to sacrifice the promised son that he waited 25 years for. And then the angel shows up and rescues him. That's some serious action, some serious deeds, some serious work to follow a very serious faith. And back to James in verse 22 Notice that it says that Abraham's faith was active along with his works. His faith was active and his works were active and his faith was then completed by his works. That's what the text says. And that idea of completed is not saying that his faith in some nature was like incomplete, but that, but that it brought like his works brought to completion. It was like the fruition. It was the fruit of all that his faith had borne over decades and decades. It was matured in that moment. To borrow from the language of Jesus, Jesus used this language, it bore fruit. So then verse 23, it says that Abraham believed God. Now, when did he believe him? He certainly believed him up on the mountain. He certainly believed him when he said, God's gonna provide the ram. But he also believed him 45 years earlier in Genesis 12, when he had faith and left his father's house and had faith and went to the promised land and had faith to believe that one day he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. The faith of Genesis 12 bears fruit in the works of Genesis 22, 45 years later, 45 years later. So that's his first illustration, Old Testament, Abraham, and it makes complete sense. It's not super surprising that you would point to Abraham as, uh, as Abraham was known for his faith. He's kind of known for that. I mean, that's father Abraham. He had many sons and many sons had father Abraham. If you don't know what I'm referring to, God bless you. You weren't raised in Sunday school. Good on you. Okay. But then James, he does a little thing more surprising in verse 25. Okay. In 25, he brings another old Testament illustration. Look at this. He says this. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So now he's referring to the book of Joshua, not the book of Genesis, the book of Joshua. Joshua had taken over as the de facto leader of the Israelites after Moses died. So now he is leading the Israelites and they're getting ready to march into the promised land, the very land that Abraham had been promised. 
They're about to march into that land, uh, but the Canaanites are inhabiting that land. Specifically, they're inhabiting a city called Jericho, okay? And so God is going to lead them on a conquest of the land, and the first stop is Jericho. Now, there's a woman who lives in Jericho, a Canaanite woman named Rahab, and she is a prostitute, Rahab the prostitute. So it's safe to say she's not living her best life now. Right? No little girl dreams about being a prostitute. You become a prostitute because very wicked, evil, demonic things happen to you. You're used and abused. You're treated like a commodity. You're treated like a soulless lump of flesh, not as a divine image bearer of God. So don't read that Rahab is awesome here. She is not. Rahab is dejected. She's pagan. And oh, by the way, just to throw a little bit of fuel on the fire, she's a woman in a, in a world where women were less than men. But she then meets Joshua's spies. They send some spies in to check out Jericho before they attack. And she hides the spies from the king of Jericho. And what we read in Joshua chapter two, I believe, is that she puts her faith, whatever small faith she might have as a pagan prostitute, she puts that small amount of faith in a foreign God, hoping that things would change. Just that this God might usher in a new life for her. She believed in their God and it bore fruit in the work of her hiding those spies up on her roof. And ultimately, she was the one who helped God's people to conquer Jericho. These are the two illustrations. And this is why they're so good, okay? Why those two illustrations are so good. You've got Father Abraham, who's the man. He's, by the way, the first Jew. The, the, the first Hebrew Man, the original, the OG, okay? He is well-respected by all. All, for all time. You've got Abraham by faith demonstrated in works that was counted to him as righteousness. You've got that guy illustrated. And then you have Rahab, a woman, a godless pagan, and a prostitute. And that same God that Abraham believed in, Rahab believed in, and acted then in faith just like Abraham and a pagan prostitute's faith at work and the prototype patriarch's faith at work are put next to each other to say to us, faith without works is dead. Genuine faith bears fruit. So let me use an illustration because... Abraham, Rahab, how about my next door neighbor, okay? My next door neighbor is a guy named Phil. He's the third in this illustration, okay? Uh, Phil, uh, in his front yard are two non-fruit bearing pear trees. Beautiful trees, beautiful trees, okay? They're great, beautiful. They flower in the spring. Uh, they give his home wonderful shade, but, but listen to me, they're ornamental pear trees. They are non-fruit bearing pear trees, and that means they will never give him fruit. They'll never produce pears, okay? They cannot do it. They cannot bear fruit because they have been cultivated not to. 
They have been cultivated not to bear fruit. Now, on the other hand, when I moved into my house right next to, in like our adjoining yard, we had an apple tree. And this thing, it was like the rabbit of apple trees, okay? It produced more fruit than I'd ever seen in my life. Just hundreds of apples everywhere, all over my lawn. You'd hit them with the lawnmower. You'd shoot apple guts everywhere. It was crazy, okay? The, the apples would literally roll down the street, littering the whole street with smushed apple mush all over my block. I seriously cut that thing down as soon as I moved in. I don't want those apples. I want the non-fruit-bearing apple tree, not the one with real apples, okay? It's too much work. Now imagine, just with me for a second, that, that Phil, he, he saw my apple tree and how production savvy it was. And he said, man, I wish my, my pear trees would start producing pears like that. Here's the truth. No matter how much fertilizer he uses, like no matter how much water, no matter how much sun those trees get, they will never bear fruit. They are incapable of bearing fruit. Hence their name, non-fruit bearing tree. But my apple tree, I couldn't stop it without murdering that thing, okay? Right? A tree that is cultivated to bear fruit will bear fruit. That's why I cut mine down. And a tree that is cultivated not to bear fruit will never bear any fruit. And oh, by the way, like you can't just make a tree, a fruit bearing tree by adding some fruit to it either. Like back to our very, the introduction of this sermon. Okay. Back to the beginning. Can you, can faith without works save you? Right? Can, or I mean, I'm sorry, can works alone without faith save you? I mean, imagine I go out to the front and I see my neighbor Phil on a ladder up a tree, which is a normal thing to see, but he's got a sack of pears from King Supers and a staple gun. And he's out there, he's like, kazink, kazink, kazink. And he's like, hey, Chris, check it out, man. My tree's killing it. Look at all these pears. I'd be like, Marcy, get the sign, put it in the yard. We're moving, right? This guy's nuts. You don't add fruit. You don't add works to make a tree fruitful. It's by faith and it produces fruit. If you have genuine faith, you will bear the fruit of works. Now here's where it gets hard. The reverse is is true as well. If you aren't bearing fruit, you might not have genuine faith. Or danger alert, okay? You may have not been cultivated to bear fruit. I think that might be a word to a lot of Western American evangelicals. That we've been going to places, doing church for so long that we have been cultivated not to bear fruit under the guise of being a fruit-bearing Christian. Or God help us, you might be stapling fruit up, just hoping that that's going to change you, but it never will. It never will. So let's end the chapter. Let's end this chapter. Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This whole passage is about this. Faith that works. That's what it's about. 
Faith without works is useless. Faith without works is ineffective. Faith without works, on repeat, is dead. But faith with works is faith that works. It's faith that works. Listen, maybe you believe a lot of things about God. But have you ever believed in God? Have you ever applied that to your life? Have you ever sat down, as it were, in the chair of faith? You're like, I'm not sure. Well, are you bearing any fruit? I'm not talking fake kind of outside in stapled to a tree, rotten fruit. I'm talking like real fruit. Is there any objective evidence in your life that you have an actual love for Jesus Christ? I mean, you don't have to be honest with me. This is church. No place to be honest. Okay. So I get it. But like, be honest with yourself. Is there any objective evidence in your life that you actually love Jesus? Or do you say a bunch of stuff? But your works show something else. There's seven years of email to back that up. If you're not bearing fruit, this could be evidence that you've never really pistooed, trusted, put your full weight into Jesus as Lord. See, in every life, there is this moment, like a defining moment, a turning point, like a fork in the road. Sometimes we say we put our stake in the ground. It's a marker. Mine was the, the, right before my junior year of high school. I was 16, and I've been going to church for years. I've been going and going, and I never really, I mean, I knew a lot about God, but I never really knew him. But then at 16, I moved from knowing about him to knowing him, to personally knowing him, to put my faith in him. And, and maybe this is at some level hitting you today. Maybe you're online and this is hitting you today. Maybe you've been saying a lot of stuff about faith. And, and I'll just encourage you, it's time to have faith that works. Genuine faith, saving faith. I want you to put your faith in Jesus today. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. Even if you've been the church kid, it doesn't matter what your past looks like. Abraham, right? Picture of religion demonstrated his faith by works. Rahab, an outcast in every sense of the word. Same faith, same action, same God, same result. Both demonstrating faith that works. This you can start today. This you can begin or continue today. This should be the desire of every Christian heart, not intellectual assent internal transformation, faith that works. God help us. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. Father, we're thankful for this, this passage. God, we're grateful that it's, that it's actually not breaking suit with the rest of the New Testament, but in fact, it it complements Paul so well that your servant James would say, hey, faith that has nothing to back it up, no evidence, no fruit, no activity, that faith is, it's not saving faith. It's something else. It's a clanging gong. It's a clashing symbol. It's, it's saying without seeing. 
Lord, I have no doubts in my mind that there are those in this room today, online today, hearing this. And then they look at their life in the last number of years and they would say, man, there's no fruit there. Holy Spirit, would you, would you preach? Would you speak to hearts? Speak to minds? Reveal whether there might be some sort of incomplete faith that's lacking action. Lord, would you call us each to repent, to confess where we have in word only said to those around us, even those we love, hey, be, be, be warm and well fed, but we've done nothing. Lord, forgive us of that and, and activate our faith that we might out of your great love for us, love others. God, I pray you save someone today. It's always so encouraging to hear testimonies of people who have been in church their whole lives, but have never put their faith truly in you. I pray somebody sits down in the chair of faith today. Holy Spirit, I pray you do that. God, activate us. We want our faith to be genuine. We want our faith that works. We pray you do that in us more and more as the days grow. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.